Welcome to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline, a Fordham Law podcast about threats to democracy and what to do about them. I'm Julie Sook. I'm Jed Sugarman. We're both professors at Fordham Law School in New York City. In this episode, we ask the question, does the Constitution's abolition of slavery speak to the ongoing crisis of racial injustice, which is entrenched in the 21st century in prisons and the child welfare system? We're thrilled to welcome the perfect guest for this conversation, the renowned law professor and scholar of racial and reproductive justice, Dorothy Roberts, who's the George A. Weiss University Professor of Law and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, and author of the pathbreaking book, Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty. Her most recent book is Torn Apart, published earlier this year on how the child welfare system destroys Black families and how abolition can build a safer world. Though separated by a quarter of a century, both Killing the Black Body and Torn Apart show how reproductive justice must get beyond the narrow negative right to abortion to address the full range of laws, policy, and institutions that shape our lives, especially for Black women. Professor Roberts also published Abolition Constitutionalism as the foreword for the Harvard Law Review in 2019. We invited her on the Constitutional Crisis Hotline to discuss the crisis of American prisons and the crisis of the child welfare system. Welcome, Dorothy. We're so delighted to have you. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me on your podcast. With both of these amazing and uh, recent works. We wanted to start by asking you to talk a little bit about the crisis of constitutional democracy that is posed by the prison industrial complex and the child welfare system. Well, both of these systems are carceral systems that the state targets at marginalized communities in order to exclude them from mainstream politics and decision-making to tamp down rebellions by those communities and to control them or attempt to control them by caging members of the communities and by taking their children away. And I've increasingly seen how these two systems, the prison industrial complex and what I call the family policing system operate very similarly. They target the same communities, especially Black and Indigenous communities, and they operate to seek to control them through terror and disruption. And they also tell the public this message that these systems are dealing with crises in democracy that are actually caused by racial capitalism and structural racism and white supremacy by meeting people's needs and dealing with social conflicts through these extremely violent ways. In other words, instead of pointing our attention toward the need for radical social change in order to have a true democracy. Uh, Instead, they punish the very people who are most disadvantaged by structural inequities. 
but under the guise that they're keeping the rest of America safe. And, and they both operate in that way. And so uh, I've come to the conclusion that both of these systems should be abolished, I and, and many other people, yeah, in order to have an equal, humane, caring society that isn't grounded in violence and deep inequities uh, and instead is is uh, focused on our common humanity and caring for people and meeting hum- and truly meeting people's needs. So what would it look like to abolish these systems, the system of prisons as it currently exists and the child welfare or family policing system as it exists? Well, here I'm borrowing from what I've learned from a long history of abolitionists, uh, including contemporary prison abolitionists and a growing movement of family policing abolitionists. But there are some basic principles of abolition theorizing and activism. I write about these in my foreword, Prison Abolitionism. Uh, And those basic tenets are that we need to dismantle current systems like the prison industrial complex and the family policing system that are designed to oppress people and maintain uh, deep inequities and, and hierarchies, unequal hierarchies in our society. At the same time, and at the very same time that we're building a society that is radically different, that truly meets people's needs, that truly prevents violence uh, inside homes and and in the broader society and doesn't react to violence by inflicting state violence. Uh, And so it's really important to understand that abolition isn't just tearing down what exists. It's just as much building up a replacement for it at the same time. In fact, I think it's it's very clear that you can't tear down the oppressive systems that exist today without mm-hmm. a replacement uh, because people wouldn't be safe safer. Right. Well, I, I would. I, I mean, actually, let me let me take that back a little bit because I actually think that people would be safer without these systems. If you just tore them down without even replacing them. Exactly. I think that they produce so much harm that people would be safer, but that's not the goal. (laughs) The vision of abolition, the vision of abolition is to build a society that truly keeps people safe, you know, that truly meets people's needs. And that is what we need to do as we're dismantling, each one is important because you also can't build that society as long as these oppressive systems exist, nor can you tear them down without right. building a replacement for them. And how do you see us getting there? Do you see this as a project of litigation, perhaps under the Constitution or other civil rights laws? Do you see it as a question of electoral politics or other forms of democracy? Uh, because I read and admire the work of abolitionists uh, like yourself and many sociologists working in the field, uh, but um, sometimes I think that nothing short of a revolution uh, can really get us there, hopefully a peaceful revolution, 
Uh, but um, but I wondered uh, if we could talk a little bit about your ideas as to how we might get there. I think it does require a revolution to get there. And yes, I am a peaceful person. I believe in peace and hopefully it could happen peacefully. But really achieving an abolitionist vision requires radical, radical change. It does require a revolution in the way our society is organized. Uh, It requires us thinking seriously about the meaning and role of the state and what its relationship is to making the kinds of radical transformations we need to make. But abolitionists have also, many have also pointed out that this change has to be incremental. We're not in a position at this moment to have a radical revolution in the United States at this moment, right now. Uh, We have to work toward it incrementally. And so that incremental reform, what Ruthie Gilmore calls non-reformist reforms, reforms that are aimed at abolition, not at maintaining the status quo, not at shoring up the oppressive systems we have now, that requires strategizing about the kinds of tools you mentioned. You know, to what extent do we use litigation in the courts? To what extent do we use legislation? Uh, To what extent do we build community-based networks apart from the state? Or to what extent do we embrace the Constitution of the United States as it exists? Well, that's the question I raised in my foreword. What does it mean that the Constitution exists? You know, it only exists in terms of how it's interpreted. It doesn't do anything by itself. It's so funny as I'm saying that, you know, I do a lot of work on uh, racism and genetics and genetic determinism, opposing those. That's another hat I wear. And I frequently say, genes don't do anything. Yeah, they have to be expressed. And I feel like right. I'm saying the same thing about the oh, I love that. Yeah, It doesn't do anything by itself. And in fact, as I point out in my foreword, it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court to be anti-abolitionist. It's, it's been interpreted to support slavery and racial capitalism and white supremacy. So, and it was written that way. Now, I, as I point out, there was a radical revision of the Constitution after the Civil War to incorporate an abolitionist vision, to incorporate the work that anti-slavery abolitionists had done. It was animated by that. That's what the 13th and 14th Amendments were supposed to be about. And that history has been ignored by, including in the Dobbs decision most recently, but ignored ever since those amendments were enacted, basically ignored by the U.S. Supreme Court. And I believe that we should acknowledge the abolitionist vision behind the 13th and 14th Amendments. 
Can you walk us through that? I, I really love this argument um, building on Uncle Tom's Cabin and, and Harriet Beecher Stowe. Can you just walk our, our listeners through that originalist argument about family autonomy and privacy and reproductive rights? Yes. So the 13th and 14th Amendments were drafted and enacted by radical Republicans who were abolitionists, and they were intended to implement the end of slavery and other kinds of forced servitude. Uh, and the incidents of slavery, you know, those words are literally in the 13th Amendment. Right. And to give Black people in particular, but all people born in the United States, or, and of course, this is a limit of it, but people who are citizens of the United States, uh, the full protection of the law. That was designed to give the newly emancipated Black people full citizenship in the United States. Now, again, that's never been truly implemented in the United States, but that was the purpose of these amendments. And they were enacted after Congress heard testimony from formerly enslaved people about the ways in which the institution of slavery denied them their inalienable human rights. And chief among those inalienable human rights were the right to reproductive freedom and the right to family autonomy because the great sins, as they were called at the time, the greatest sins of slavery were the ways in which enslavers could control the reproductive bodies and lives of enslaved people, the way in which they enforced reproductive servitude, compelling Black people to give birth to children who were deemed the property of enslavers, uh, including children who were born out of the rape of uh, black women, which wasn't deemed to be a crime at the time. It was inconceivable that there would be any limit on sexual violence against black people by enslavers. And also the forced family separation of black families, the way in which enslavers could sell off, well, first of all, they could purchase Black members of black families separately, and then they could sell them off in any way they wanted to. These were the great harms of slavery that Black people testified before Congress about, and that were a big... But even bigger than Congress was how people like Harriet Beecher Stowe and Frederick Douglass told the story to the public. That's, that's the story you tell that is, that, that is the originalism, because people can talk to Congress people all they want. That's not your story. Is how uh, the American public got mobilized when, when when Abraham Lincoln meets Harriet Beecher Stowe. He he looks around and says, "This is the little lady that started this war." Without Frederick Douglass and and Harriet Beecher Stowe, we don't get Abraham Lincoln. Okay, absolutely. So I was describing the drafting of the Thirteenth and Fourteenth Amendments and what animated 
the drafting by people in Congress, the radical Republicans in Congress. Mm-hmm. Now we could get to going back. Well, what inspired that? Exactly. You know, what, exactly. what is the, the original, original story of the 13th and 14th Amendments? And of course, that was the work of anti-slavery abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, like Harriet Beecher Stowe, and, and many, many others, you know, unnamed unrecognized Black people who rebelled against slavery. and But people like Stowe and Douglas had uh, a kind of pulpit, you know, with uh, books and uh, newspaper articles. And of course, Douglas's oratory that uh, helped to spread the message of the oppression of slavery and the need to abolish it. And this is what motivated, animated, led to the passage of the 13th and 14th Amendments. And that original history is all but ignored in constitutional Mm -hmm. jurisprudence, the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court, but also a lot of the jurisprudence of constitutional law professors and scholars as well. Uh, And uh, I think it's, it's essential to to point out and really attend to abolition constitutionalism, the the values mm-hmm. that underlie the Reconstruction Amendments, which are you know, a major revision, a radical revision of the U.S. Constitution, which until then was uh, explicitly slavery-supporting constitution. Uh, unfortunately, the meaning of the 13th and 14th Amendments have been so watered down by the court, by scholars, that this, this, the radical nature of this revision of the Constitution gets lost. And again, in the Dobbs decision, it's obliterated. It's just a, amazing hmm. how the Dobbs majority could say that there's nothing in U.S. history or in constitutional analysis that would support reproductive freedom, or in this particular case, the freedom not to be compelled to give birth. What? I mean, it's so obvious that that compelling people to give birth is exactly one of the, or the kind of coercion, oppression, that the 13th and 14th Amendments were meant to end, to prevent, to, 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 to hail yep. as uh, violations of deep constitutional principles and human rights. Well, I love how you refer to or label that as the original, original story. And we're actually joined by our student, Fordham Law 3L, Jacqueline Deach, who has a question for you. So as you were just discussing, and as you also discussed in your article, abolition constitutionalism, there's overwhelming evidence that the Reconstruction Amendments were enacted with the intention for them to be much more radical and reparative than the Supreme Court has actually interpreted them to be. And recently, Justice Jackson was invoking the sort of 
liberal originalist interpretation, specifically in the oral arguments for the Alabama voting rights case. And so in addition to calling attention to how these amendments really were intended to be much more radical, do you think that it's also useful for jurists to use this kind of progressive originalism to dismantle racist oppression, considering that originalism is typically used to uh, perpetuate right-wing ideology? I think it is useful to understand the radical and anti-slavery abolition origins of the Reconstruction Amendments. And also to point out that right-wing originalism is a misinterpretation of those amendments or ignoring them entirely, uh, certainly ignoring the history of them. First of all, it just corrects the historical record. <laughs> I, I think it's it's very disturbing to see how the right-wing justices on the U.S. Supreme Court today and in the past have distorted history, have just simply lied about history, have given a false narrative of the origins of those amendments. Uh, And then secondly, as I argue in my foreword, I think it can be instrumentally useful to make an argument for radical change, for abolition, using the Constitution. Now, this does not mean that I believe that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to liberate people in America. This is not a reliance on the court. Uh, As I point out, abolition constitutionalism is a set of values it's, a, it's an idea about what, how a society should be organized. You know, it's an idea about what human freedom means. And that doesn't have to only find a place in the U.S. Constitution or in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, but radicals have long used the Constitution to hold up the hypocrisy of American racism and white supremacy. I point out mm-hmm. that quote from George Jackson, uh, and I, I don't have it in front of me, I'm probably going to uh, misquote him, but I'll just paraphrase, where he calls on the lawyers representing him in court to hold the judges to the high standard of what the Constitution says and point out that they've been violating people's constitutional rights under what is written in the Constitution. Now, I don't think George Jackson believed that the judges were going to free him from prison or liberate Black people in any way, but he was still making an argument that we should nevertheless hold up the abolitionist principles in the Constitution, if only to point out the hypocrisy of courts that don't implement them and that distort uh, the history of them in order to support the status quo. By the way, I just published in the Harvard Law Review a response to Kiara Bridges' foreword in the Mm -hmm. latest issue on this topic of uh, racism 
uh, abolition and historical resemblance, pointing out the difference between the U.S. Supreme Court's use of history, especially pre-civil rights history, to deny any remedy for current racial injuries, and in fact, to obscure a current structural racism. As Professor Bridges points out, the court has this, what I dub a historical resemblance test that Uh says if current racial injuries inflicted by the state don't look the same as those inflicted during the slavery and Jim Crow eras, pre-civil rights eras, then there's no remedy. It's not really a racial injury. And do you take issue with the historical resemblance test? uh, Or is it just that we there's a lot of uh, interpretive disconnect with regard to what people think resembles uh, the slavery uh, whose history you dig up from the 19th century and earlier? Yeah, well, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make in that response is I agree with Professor Bridges that the court is using a historical resemblance test to deny the existence of structural racism today. But what I want to point out is that it's not a reference to history itself that is, a, you know, a bad or unjust analysis. It's that the court is using an underlying theory of racism Mm -hmm. that is actually white supremacist, that doesn't recognize Mm -hmm. that white supremacy has a trajectory that extends from the slavery era until today. And to understand that trajectory, you need to understand the history of it. Uh, And I point out that many prison abolitionists have used history as an analytical tool to point out the trajectory of white supremacy and racial capitalism. That we can see that there are connections between the institutions of slavery and Jim Crow and white supremacy today. And so I contrast the U.S. Supreme Court's distortion and manipulation of history. It's a mm. false narrative of history yeah. so, with abolitionists. So just to um, ask a little bit about the abolition, uh, you're very nuanced in the Harvard Law Review article about abolitionist constitutionalism and in, in re- recognizing that the text of the 13th and 14th Amendment explicitly recognizes Incarceration. Yeah. Right? And you're open about this, but just for you know listeners, you know, the thirteenth Amendment has this caveat, you know, that there no no servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. And of course the fourteenth amendment, no state shall deprive life, liberty, or property without due process. So how do I, I understand that you're making more of an aspirational argument and an incremental argument, but I guess my question is, those are aspirations and incrementalism towards a more humane balance. But how do you see abolitionism out of the text as well as the purpose of, of these amendments? And Jed, you mean modern uh, abolitionism. That's right. That is abolition of prisons, abolition of the child welfare system. That's exactly right. I mean, the prison abolition, despite the fact that the text explicitly recognizes the, those purposes. Yes, So I acknowledge and I agree uh, with many abolitionists today who point out that the 13th Amendment has this exception for 
incarcerated people. Uh, and But I argue that that should not be a reason to ignore the abolitionist uh, animation uh, and history of the 13th Amendment. So I try to explain, based on some recent research looking into what the radical Republicans said about it mm-hmm. at the time, wrote about it at the time, it appears that they did not anticipate right. that incarceration was going to be used to re-enslave Black people. Uh, you have to under- remember at the time when the 13th Amendment was passed, it was unusual to incarcerate African-Americans and Mm -hmm. slave people were rarely incarcerated and most people who were incarcerated were white. That radically changed with the abolition of Reconstruction and the white supremacist Mm -hmm. backlash against the use of prisons to basically re-enslave Black people. But that is not what that amendment was intended to do and or that language was intended to do. And James Pope, for example, one of my former colleagues at Rutgers Law School points out that when that began to happen, the drafters of the 13th Amendment were alarmed. They were, right. they, they explicitly mm. said that was not the intention. So it is uh, language that has been used to support incarceration in a way that was not intended by its drafters. Now, nevertheless, the language is there, and right. it. I support work that is being done to try to delete it from the amendment. Um, I also think that when we interpret the 13th Amendment, we should take into account that it was not intended to support mass incarceration of Black people. My argument is based more on what the amendment was intended to do and not its manipulation by uh, the state to yeah. ignore that history. I, I think of the argument a little bit like, I, you know, I'm a death penalty abolitionist mm-hmm. and the same kinds of arguments uh, uh, people make there, right? The same point about the 14th Amendment. You know, life, you can deprive life with due process. Well, that anticipates the death penalty and, you know, no one thought that we would need a, a, a death penalty this way in the, with the technology and with the rate, with McCleskey versus Kemp, the case about the racial application when it's a white victim, right? So I think the text is there as uh, an anchor, but you, but rights, but you can expand rights even if the text acknowledges some powers. There are rights that can that can prevail over those powers. Yes, I think there are ways that we can acknowledge the abolitionism of the 13th and 14th Amendments without bowing to these interpretations that, in the end, violate the the purpose of those amendments. I, I'm sure, you know, I'm not a statutory constructionist, but I believe that there's a principle of statutory construction that you uh, look at the overall purpose of a statute and uh, don't try to interpret it in a way that contradicts the main purpose of it. So that's how I would uh, and do approach, approach it. Again, 
recognizing that language is there and recognizing Mm -hmm. that it has been used as an excuse for mass incarceration, but nevertheless pointing out that a mass incarceration is a form of enslavement that perpetuates the white supremacist objective of enslaving Black people into the 21st century. So can we talk about your book, Torn Apart, which is amazing. Sure, I would like it. It it takes that next step from the arguments you've been making. So maybe you could just lay out the the connection between what you've been talking about with prison abolition to to family regulation um, abolition. Well, in my book, Torn Apart, I try to discredit the dominant view of the so-called child welfare system, foster care, uh, the child protection system, and point, you know, as benevolent, helpful, needed uh, systems in our society, and point out that they, like the prison system, uh, were, uh, were designed and continue to operate as a way of accusing, investigating, regulating, disrupting, destroying the most marginalized communities, especially Black and Indigenous or Native communities in America. And like the prison system, they cannot, uh, the family policing system can't be reformed because it was designed to be oppressive. It operates that way. Reforming it only shores it up only extends the net of families that get ensnared in it and only legitimizes it and allows it to continue to send this false message that the reason why there are so many children in America with unmet needs is because of their pathological parents and that the way to deal with these needs is to punish their parents and take their children away from them instead of what is truly needed, which is the kind of radical change that abolitionists are envisioning. And so abolition is what is needed in terms of these continued harms inflicted on, again, the most marginalized, vulnerable communities in America by this very brutal system of family policing. So if we could say a little bit more about what abolition of the child welfare system or family policing uh, would look like, because one of the things that I find most significant about the turn from reproductive freedom to reproductive justice is the critique of a certain way of thinking about reproduction as a negative right. Uh, So uh, one thing that you said, which I think was really important insight about Roe v. Wade Uh, was that there was this narrow focus on this negative right to abortion uh, and the right to state non-interference with that choice, uh, which was only a small piece of and a necessary precondition uh, for something much larger, uh, which ultimately could not be a complete state abandonment of people's reproductive needs and choices. Uh, So it's a Once you get the state out of abortion, it means the state refuses to fund the abortions of poor women, even abortions that are medically necessary. Uh, And now if we bring that into the child welfare uh, context, uh, on the one hand, 
uh, I think you're right that the system as it exists uh, is so interested in social control and racism uh, that abolishing it is probably better than not having it. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, does that risk leaving the most vulnerable people uh, without any kind of support uh, for their child rearing and reproductive needs? The system as it exists now does not provide support for uh, people's child rearing and reproductive needs. It, it mm. does the opposite. It interprets the needs of children as the fault of pathological parents who require parent training classes and therapeutic interventions. It does not see these unmet needs as requiring the state to provide anything. You know, so for example, when uh, they get a call on the child abuse hotline that there's a family that's houseless, the way in which Child Protective Services deals with it is to blame the parents for not having a home or not having secure housing taking the children away from them and putting them in foster care, which is a very harmful way of caring for children and requiring the parents to find housing before they can get their children back. It does not provide housing. Now, that's just on the individual case-by-case level how it operates. But more broadly, it operates to say the problem of houseless children is their pathological parents who don't provide a home. And we're going to accuse those parents of child neglect and take their children away as the solution. But it leaves in place the vast majority of houseless families in America and doesn't provide housing for them. So it's it, it, it operates both in a way that harms the families that get ensnared within it, but it also operates to ignore the needs of even more families that don't have the resources that their children need. So so the system, I'm just pointing out, it's important to note that the system not only is affirmatively harmful and traumatizing, but it also, you know, to, to the families that it targets, but it also is harmful in the sense that the unmet needs of children in America remain Mm -hmm. unmet by this system. So Mm -hmm. abolishing the system not only would end the infliction of terror and trauma on families, but it also, and again, I get back to abolition, isn't just tearing down the system. It's also affirmatively replacing it. So it also is a way for us as a society to say, how are we going to meet the needs of children without mm. this terroristic system? That's, that's equally as important. I really appreciate the sense that you see the, that you're getting the big picture of that, the, that they're interlocking pieces. And if you shift the resources from child protective services taking children, you've got more resources for more help. I do have a question also about another kind of dynamic where there is a uh, sort of a uh, push and pull between criminal justice and child protective services in that. Um, I I think reformers had good intentions of de-incarcerating 
by having a civil intervention with families. And so if you put fewer parents, you don't have to put as many parents in jail to solve some of the problems that the social services are seeing by saying, well, we'll protect the kids. We don't have to put the parents in jail. And my concern is that if you abolish the Children Protective Services, the system, whether well-intentioned or white supremacist or you know, driven by fear and uh, uh, loathing and fake news will shift back towards more incarceration, right? If you're, if you're not intervening to protect the kids, the system that is blocked from one path will find another. And so I wonder, I'm, I'm concerned about um, that, the, the family social services abolition actually making, making more incarceration. So it's interesting you put it that way because I, I have expressed concern about abolitionists who want to defund the police, arguing that services should be, you know, those resources should be directed toward the family policing system and that that's wrong. So mm. I think both right. of our concerns lead to the conclusion that we need to see the connections between these abolitionist movements, but, you know, both the connections between these two systems and the connections between the movements that are seeking to abolish them. Because one thing to to note, and I, I emphasize this in my book, Torn Apart, these systems already are deeply entangled. Yeah, Police are some of the main uh, reporters of child abuse and neglect. Uh, there are joint task forces throughout the nation of cops and caseworkers. Uh, they... Mm go on missions to inspect and investigate families and take children away together routinely. Uh, And they have the same carceral logic, which is that the way to deal with a family who cannot meet their children's needs isn't to provide the resources the family needs, it's to incarcerate and uh, take children away. So I think it's essential that we understand that these are integrated systems. We, you really cannot address them separately. They're integrated carceral systems that need to be abolished, that is dismantled and replaced with other ways of meeting people's needs and dealing with violence. Uh, the same kinds of strategies that abolition, that prison abolitionists are using to replace police and prisons would work with replacing the family policing system. Community-based mutual aid that meets people's needs, you know, material needs. Transformative justice approaches that prevent violence, that heal relationships and communities, that deal with the trauma that victims of violence have experienced and don't rely on ways that we know are ineffective, which is locking people up and taking people's children away. That so we 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 the it's the same strategies, approaches, replacements of these systems that would work. So in other words, in answer to the question, Jed, what what if we abolish the family policing system, wouldn't that throw people into 
the criminal punishment system, the answer is, well, we don't want either. We don't want, it shouldn't be either or. Yeah, but there's the America we can aspire to, and then there's the America we have. And, and I, I appreciate your incrementalism, but... I, I wonder. I guess I'm just asking. What are what are the concrete steps? I mean, if we could if we could figure out something as like a five year plan to towards these goals, what is what would be what should we as reformers who understand America is what it is and humans are the, are are what they are? What what it, what are the next steps we can all see as concrete and and, and practical? Okay, so so um, let me let me frame that by saying. I'm not sure that we would want to pick one over the other. You know, for many people, the family policing, taking your children away is worse than spending some time in jail. And of course, spending time in jail increases the risk your children are going to be taken away. So I would Mm. reject the idea that, well, I'm worried that one, if we abolish one, the other will rise up because one isn't worse than the other. They're both terrible. Okay, so then the question is, What can we do to abolish both of them? And so uh, I would follow the plans that abolitionists have been laying out and that organizations are working on right now. Don't build more prisons. Don't increase the budgets of family policing systems. Spend that money on supporting community-based networks of mutual aid that actually meet people's material needs. Now, as I said earlier, there's a big debate among abolitionists about the extent to which we rely at all or include at all the state. I firmly believe we should not rely on contracts with the state to develop these community-based resources. Um, The place where I am, let's say, on the fence, I'm still thinking this through myself, is getting money into the hands of impoverished families. Uh, We know that the measures the federal government implemented during the COVID pandemic to actually put more income into the hands of impoverished families cut child poverty in America dramatically. You know, and it's no, you don't have to be, what do they say, a rocket scientist to figure out that if you give impoverished people more income, that uh, childhood poverty will be reduced. Now, that also uh, means that the kinds of issues that families have that lead to incarceration and child removal would be dramatically reduced. That is one measure. Uh, Advocating for transferring the billions and billions of dollars spent on prisons, on police, on the so-called child welfare system, and into direct income, into the hands of impoverished families would be a major way of replacing those systems. Again, incrementally, it would make a big difference. And I I support that. Again, I understand that there's a a question of whether the state will ever uh, do anything that truly moves us uh, to ending the domination of 
you know, the elite class in America. Well, it seems like it's so essential then uh, that the abolitionist project is not just about dismantling, but also building up uh, through actual resources. Absolutely. So my question is whether you think abolition constitutionalism needs to reach beyond the resources that we have in the U.S. Constitution for abolishing slavery. Yeah, so first... As I was saying at the very beginning, what the Constitution requires is a matter of interpretation. So I would argue that the 14th Amendment does recognize the rights of parents to raise their children. In fact, the first substantive due process cases, which again, the Supreme Court seemed to forget about in the Dobbs decision, were all about parental rights to uh, determine the raising of their children in ways you know, that the state uh, didn't want right, them like to do. Teaching German to your children. Exactly. Uh, that was exactly, why, right? Exactly. So um, I would argue we could find those rights in the Constitution today. But I think more broadly, it's something you raised before that I didn't really address, Julie, which was the uh, affirmative uh, aspect of rights, which this... U.S. Supreme Court has never acknowledged and, in fact, has written, I mean, the Supreme Court in general has written several opinions, including um, Harris versus McRae and others denying uh, any right to uh, any kind of affirmative state support, including funding for actually exercising rights that the court has recognized. So that is one major change we could have in our constitutional interpretation, that there is uh, a right to government funding of uh, in order to exercise the rights uh, provided for in the Constitution. Uh, another uh, is to expand the rights that are recognized, like uh, the right to an education, uh, the right to uh, a a decent wage, uh, uh, the right to high quality health care, all of the things that human beings need in order to flourish in a society, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has not recognized as being protected by the Constitution. And those are all um, rights that we could and should recognize. Now, as I say that, I also recognize that focusing on rights alone is inadequate to actually Mm -hmm. protect people's freedoms. And that's why uh, I argue that abolition constitutionalism is a set of values that aren't just found or enforced by the Constitution. We could, uh, I think they should be enforced by state legislatures mm-hmm. and local legislatures, but they're also values that we can implement in our society in other ways as well. Uh, in communities, in the ways in which we think about how we want to treat each other in our neighborhoods, you know, the people who we know and interact with and work with. So, Um, those are all important as well. You know, some abolitionists who want to abolish the state as well point out, I just heard uh, Hershawalia say this the other day, that uh, these 
the the ways in which our human needs are met in functions we see as belonging to the state are actually met by people who know how to do these things. And the question is, do we need a state to uh, require them to do it or to pay for them to do it or to regulate them? Or can we rely on each other within communities to provide these things? And these are questions, as I said, I haven't worked out entirely in my own mind and work, but I think they're questions, I think they're legitimate questions. I think they're Mm -hmm. questions that we do need to grapple with. And uh, I, I see in my own work relationships with the state that I think we should discredit, avoid, but I also still see, and I might change my mind on this, a role for the state to distribute the kinds of resources that people need, or at least as an incremental step, redistribute what the resources, the money, you know, that it's extracting from us now. Well, you want the state to be more human. Or humane. I wanted to support human flourishing more. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, that may be a non-reformist reform toward mm-hmm. ending the state, which uh, some abolitionists argue, and I can see their point, is the the apparatus that inflicts these this kind of violence on people that coer- that is that runs coercive systems and i think the question is can we imagine a society uh that doesn't have these systems with us with that's still based in a state or do we have to imagine it without a state and uh you know i confess i haven't quite worked it all out but i do know i have worked out that we must abolish these carceral systems. We have to dismantle them and replace them Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, continue to discuss, to grapple with what role the state will have in doing that. This has been a really interesting and important conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today on the Constitutional Crisis Hotline. We'd like to thank Fordham Law School, especially all the deans and communications team for supporting this podcast. We especially want to thank our guests, Dorothy Roberts and Fordham Law student Jacqueline Deitch for helping our listeners understand the crisis of systemic racial injustice and the role that abolition constitutionalism can play in addressing it. The Constitutional Crisis Hotline music is Climbing by Poddington Bear, a.k.a. Chad Crouch. The logo design is by Clinton Webb of Agave Studios. Huge thanks to Melody Rowell and Bill Pollock of Yellow Armadillo Studios for producing this podcast. Please subscribe to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline, a Fordham Law podcast. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us at uh, CN Crisis Hotline on Twitter and Uh, We look forward to our next conversation.